Are we starting or are we not starting? We're, we've started. This oh my, is the show. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> this is the show. Welcome, welcome to our guest. Why don't you welcome our guest? Are you saying that as if, like, are you saying, are you literally asking why, why I haven't uh, welcomed the guest? Or is this, I'm, I'm just wondering why you are Or is this an invitation to her? a segment, the welcome segment? Yeah. Welcome. Welcome, Christian. Hi, Joe. <laughs> <laughs> you usually introduce the guest. We have a guest here you, in World Headquarters. I know, in World Headquarters live, <laughs> in person. I, we usually, I do usually introduce the guest. You also take into criticizing me quite a bit about the first few things I say to the guest. Really? Like I get started in the wrong place or I bring, like I'm bringing up something too soon. Maybe this is just my frame of mind these days. Like, to, I don't know. To just be critical. Just to be critical, like to lash okay. out. So yeah, so why I'm don't a, you You know start, I'm a lashy person. Why don't you start and I'll lash? I think that's better. <laughs> or or no one could lash. <laughs> well, that's, 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 that's an interesting idea. Maybe too much to hope it's for. It's a bit countercultural. Today with us in uh, Oral Argument World Headquarters is the inestimable bull. <laughs> you want to try that again? Inestimable. It's it's just what's in the show is in the show. Okay. Sandy Mason. Of, Welcome, Sandy. Yeah. Of, Thanks, of our Joe. law school, University of Georgia Law School. Thanks, Christian. Thanks for joining us. It's great to be here. Well, <laughs> let's, let's not overdo it. I mean, it's, <laughs> it's it certainly great to have you here. But like, so we're, you know, world headquarters, it may sound like a gleaming structure of glass and steel, like, mm. you know, piercing into the blue sky. Upwards, upwards, ever upwards. I think the most important word in that sentence was may. <laughs> in fact, it is. It, it, it may is, sound that yeah. way. It may not. Uh, well, I can tell you what it does not sound like. It doesn't sound like a professional studio. Yeah, because it's not. It's not. It's just a small room. And we got like a, we, it's, it's pretty thrown together today. We oh, got three I, mics I beg in here. to differ. This is all very professional. <laughs> we, we're using I a different impressed. mic. On my first visit to World Headquarters, I... I'm duly impressed. Well, that's, hey, that's reassuring. Yeah, that, that's something. We've gotten acclimated. It doesn't seem as exciting to us anymore, but it is, in fact, excellent. Okay. Hey, I think we, I think we wrap up there and we've, it's, Yeah, I don't we, know if it's going to get any better from, from there. <laughs> it's just been a heck of a week, right? It's just been a heck of a week. So yeah. we're going to focus on. So we got to, we got to roll forward. The last, two weeks ago, we did a show that was just about stuff. And, you know, I, th- I, I think everything that we said then, I stand by all that. I don't think anything changed since then. Okay. Uh, but so, but today we're going to go back to our usual modus operandi of not paying attention to the events of the world. To focus on the timeless. Yes. The, well, yeah. Well, the newsy events of the world. We're focusing on I- events in the world all the time, just not like newsy events, such that the episode would be dated in some way. Right. No, this will be never be dated. <laughs> <laughs> so this, this is like pulling on a, you know, I feel like it's like pulling on a chainsaw a little bit. So it's here's gotta the, get it. We gotta get going. Here's the thing. Okay. Um, Sandy's paper, Bias In, Bias Out, uh, is awesome and. It that's has, the name of it, bias in, bias out. That's true. Okay. And it has raised many questions for me. And I realize as I read papers like this, that one shortcoming I have in reading a paper like this is um, I, I don't I don't teach in the criminal law area. I didn't practice in the criminal law area. The court where I clerked was one of the few federal appellate courts that hears no criminal matters of any kind. And so my criminal law kind of experience is a real is i'm really starting way behind the the block no um, the court you clerk for just commits crimes against uh, innovation <laughs> and creativity that, that that's as may be um but we certainly didn't hear any appeals in criminal cases you're the um, ideal reader then right um but maybe so so um 
you know, the the paper, which, and we're going to lay out because we've been getting some feedback lately. We're going to have a segment where we actually say what happens in the paper. Yes. Okay. So we're going to get to that. But before we get to that. Oh, see, this is the whole problem. This is the whole bit of feedback. No, no, no. (laughs) It's not the whole problem. No, I swear. All right. Okay. So here's the thing. Like, we're going to talk about uh, criminal justice risk assessment because you talk about very key ideas in that uh, domain in your paper. But here's, here's the thing that it could be surprising to someone like me coming to a project like this where I don't know much about criminal law is, and there, and you mentioned somewhere around, I think it was around page 33-ish, where the, the, the old uh, penology and the new penology, and, the, and I think a con- very conventional schoolhouse rock way of thinking about criminal law is you do something wrong. And something bad, ha- something wrong happens. It gets investigated. Someone is thought to be the perpetrator. That perfect person is arrested. Mm-hmm. They're then tried based on the evidence. So it's all about a thing that happened in the past, right? right? A thing, a thing goes wrong, gets investigated. Someone gets uh, prosecuted for it. There isn't all this stuff about the future. And the, the, what's no, risky and what's not risky and what's going to happen later. And it's all about the past. And if it if it is about the future, it's like Minority Report and. You know, you know, Minority Report. I do. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, Future crime. Exactly. A Tom Cruise vehicle uh, based on something by Philip K. Dick, I think. That's What's right. That? A short story. Yeah. Um, so how did criminal law today get to be so much about the future instead of about the past? Well, that's a big question. I specialize there's, in <laughs> <laughs> uh, There's a two-part answer. The first part of the answer is this thesis that I think of and a lot of people think of using the phrase the new penology, which is a a term coined by Jonathan Simon and Malcolm Feely in a seminal article, I believe 1992 or 1990, in the 90s, Mm -hmm. uh, in which Malcolm Feely and Jonathan Simon lay out this diagnosis of a shift in the criminal justice system writ large, a shift from a focus on adjudicating individual guilt for specific past acts, crimes, the model you laid out, the old world, the schoolhouse rock version of criminal law, a shift toward a more prospectively focused system where the the, the entire system is oriented not toward adjudicating guilt for specific past acts, but rather toward managing aggregates of dangerous groups. Of classes of people perceived to be dangerous in order to prevent future crime. Mm-hmm. More of the minority report model. That's the first answer that this shift has been ongoing since the 80s, earlier, really. Uh, and, and the causes of that shift are complex and societal. So we could talk a lot more about uh, how that's happened and, and what's driven it and the manifestation that that shift has taken in different arenas of the criminal justice system. It seems like of a piece with the regulatory attitude. It is. Right? Like the, the, the shift toward technocratic management of risk and agencies and, and the like. But let, let's get the second one out on the well, table Well, I can first. imagine a technocratic approach in, in criminal law being about sentencing and being about all the things you might want to know about a, a person and their criminal history to figure out what an appropriate sentence might be. But that would still be pretty backward looking. So, I, so I'm interested to, to know, like, if there were no system of bail and there were no system of wondering about whether someone should be detained in between the time when they got arrested and the time when they're tried, if all trials were done within two days, right, would, would we have made this shift 
to a, a risk-based future-looking way of thinking about criminal law? Or, or would yes. we not have needed it? I think we would have in any case. But before oh. I answer that, so the second part of the answer is <laughs> okay. it, it's also my view not to diminish the explanatory value of the new penology. Nonetheless, it's also my view that prospective risk assessment has always been part of criminal justice mm. and, in fact, a, an integral part. Uh, so we can talk about that, too, over the course of this conversation. Uh, it's something that I am trying to myself learn more about and develop a better grasp of because I'm not a historian. Yeah. Uh, but for instance, just by way of example, in the 1800s, in earlier in the colonies, uh, or let's say the 1800s, when the first police forces were professionalized, the police played a pretty they played a role that was in some sense a risk management role. They had mm-hmm. authority to round up classes of people deemed to be dangerous or undesirable, like vagabonds and you know, people of ill fame and ill repute and to detain such people on probable cause that they might commit a crime in the future. Not only that they had committed a crime in the past. Right. Mm. So there, there have always been these forms of prospective coercion. Right. Uh, They've taken different different forms over time, and I don't know that the current conversation around risk assessment and risk management in criminal justice has fully come to grips with just how pervasive that kind of prospective coercion has always been. But setting that aside, <laughs> it still remains true that in, over the course of the 20th century, in the second half of the 20th century, there was this dramatic shift from a system that at least professed to be focused on adjudicating guilt for specific past acts toward a system much more explicitly focused on preventive risk management. And the the fact that was the most obvious galvanizing cause of that shift was the dramatic spike in crime in the 60s, 70s, right. into the 80s. Uh, Where there was a demand for a a systematic response to what was perceived as a systemic problem. Yes, exactly. So it reminds me of like two other stories about law that are kind of like common in you know, beaten into us in a way that like a bunch of people have questioned. And so the the other two are like, you know, what is what is tort law about? What is the goal of tort law? And the story is that, you know, sometime with the development of law and economics, right, the, the kind of deterrence focused like social management of risk element of tort law became ascendant. And the old kind of like you deserve to be punished idea went away. And that's now, you know, I, I'm right. not an expert in this, but that's being revived by a bunch of uh, scholars, including like Goldberg and Zabersky and others. Right. You know, tort as like giving a chance to say something about wrongs at an individual yeah. level rather yeah. than just being like a Calabrese Posner right. management of risk. Is that the corrective theory? Yeah. Yeah. I didn't want to go into. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. The cor- corrective theory of justice versus. And, and spreading of the ability to pay and all that sort of one econ. Right. Which is just a, it's about like we've got a social problem a large-scale social problem, and this is a tool to manage that social problem, and we should be good technocrats about how we wield this tool, right? That's the, you know, the, the that's the law and econ way of looking at it. And But also there's this story about, like, law generally, especially the law of interpretation and, and the contrast between so-called formalism and legal realism, right? And this is the story that Brian Tamanaha spent a lot of his time trying to tear down, right? That it used to be that judges were just trying to kind of work free well to work law into a coherent whole which 
which somehow approximated either the true law in a natural law sense or otherwise was coherent, right? Um, and the legal realist said, no, laws, it, it's always for a purpose, right? That law always is doing something and we have freedom to choose what we want law to do and we should address law towards social problems. And, and by the way, even when you don't think law is addressed to a social problem, look carefully at what that judge is really doing because he or she, well, he then, right, right. is actually doing some, something with the law to achieve a result. And if you don't know what that result is, you're the sucker in this and so situation. And so better to bring that to the surface so that right. we can all talk about, is, about it and engage with it. Yeah, speaking of that, this is Holmes saying, you know, we need to get the dragon out onto the plane to count its scales, right? Which you right. quote in the paper, although you don't quote Holmes, you quote the late, right, yes. some quoting Holmes. Yes, although one wrinkle in the story here in this context is you, Joe was saying earlier, I would think that a technocratic impulse might take other forms than this kind of prospective risk management. And that's true. The... I, to my understanding, the real rise of the technocratic in criminal justice was much earlier in the 20th century around rehabilitation, when mm. the the notion of the social problem that the criminal law was addressed to was the problem of delinquency and the purpose of sentencing uh, was understood to be correcting the delinquency or you like redirecting indiv- the deviant. Like at an individual level? At an individual level, yeah. exactly. So but, more but, rehabilitative but, than, and less retributive. Yes. Yes. There was uh, what is referred to as the rehabilitative ideal, and that was the ideal of what sentencing could and should direct itself toward achieving. And the the people who are understood to have the power to deploy his sentencing in that way were technocrats, people trained in the science of psychology, uh, mm-hmm. s- social welfare, uh, who you were supposed to design and implement program rehabilitative sentencing and programs to you know, get people back on track. And then there was this famous uh, study published, and now I'll embarrass myself, but I believe in the early 70s, and I don't remember the name of the that's, author of this famous study. I think it's Martin. The study okay. was about how nothing works. It was the nothing works study. <laughs> and this study what represents a cheery everyone. Title. That should yeah. have been called that. <laughs> yeah. it the end of the, rehabil- the rehabilitative ideal when right. everyone came to the conclusion that, in fact, nothing works. So instead, the only option uh, to prevent crime from occurring in the future was to incapacitate the dangerous. So in the the rehabilitative ideal gave way to the ideal of incapacitation. Sentences were made much longer. Uh, Habitual offender sentencing schemes were passed to incapacitate habitual offenders. There was some uh, research... concluding and supporting the thesis that a relatively small percentage of justice-involved people are responsible for a extremely large percentage of serious crime. And so if the system could only identify and incapacitate those people, it right. could efficiently eliminate... So the bad apples theory. Yes, the bad yeah. apples. Or, exactly. or the conventional, the rearing of the traditional 80-20 rule <laughs> where... You know, 80% of the stuff is done by 20% of the people or 80% of the thing is consumed by 20% of the users right. or right. something of that nature. Exactly. Or 99-1 theory. 
Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> but, 20 is the one one here is tossed But it's not surprising that you would see here, because, you know, crime has always been a problem. <laughs> yeah, I imagine every, even, even when we were actual monkeys, I think crime was probably a problem that had to be solved by the group, right? And so it, it's not surprising that just like these other stories, to the extent, you know, you buy it all, some parallel between these stories, that that the, the 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 formal story that that you know back then quote unquote back then they were kind of very formal and not concerned with systemic risk was probably wrong they did it in their own way and then Brian Tamanaha again poked the hole poked holes in the the old formalist story they indeed were concerned with outcomes when they interpreted the constitution and they interpreted other statutes right and and so too in tort law right you look at you know old you know accident jurisprudence and they were concerned with what the effects would be and so it's not surprising that here too i mean i imagine that i haven't really you know i'm not a criminal law scholar but i imagine like jeremy bentham was concerned with like systemic criminal risk right and so i mean this is an old the entire criminal law the the benthamite vision of the criminal law is that it is a utilitarian tool to prevent i'm only hesitating because i don't know exactly the details of his prescriptions but yeah so when you look at it that way when you look at it on a utilitarian basis it makes i guess it makes all the sense in the world to think why would you restrict yourself to the past what why would you only be backward looking of course you should also be forward looking though here's the distinction a the threat of a criminal sanction is a deterrent that as hla hart wrote works through the mind right you threaten someone with punishment for doing a bad thing. It gives people a good reason not to do bad things. That is a preventive measure, but it's a preventive measure that uh, assumes and operates via individual agency, moral agency. Right. So traditional deterrence, there's a real continuity with the even the backward looking a, a, a crime happens, we investigate, we find the person who did it, right? Deterrence is still about that individual and what they did or didn't do. And so in that sense, there's a real continuity, even though it might be a little forward-looking in trying to discourage people from doing a future thing. It, it's still yeah. – the unit is still, as you say, the mind. For some people, right. it's enough to post the punishment up on the city walls, right? And and that gives them a reason. This is a totally Hardian way of looking at it. Like sounds like HLA Hart, right? Like, you know, that um, – and the other way is, is, to, is to actually, you know, actually to go through and punish somebody. And I see, oh, that person's been punished severely. That now is an authoritative example, and I learn by authoritative example. So whether I learn by authoritative example or by abstract rules, the criminal law is providing me some reason to change my behavior over what I would have, you know, what I would have done. Okay, so I think we've done a great job kind of laying out some of the things that are really familiar to folks where we can now say, okay, what's the different thing that's been going on? Because it sounds like there are some problems that are a little bit newer, um, from the sort of the 90s forward and, and getting more and more intense as algorithmic technologies and, and machine learning and all sorts of big data, all these other things have been coming, becoming available. So more so intense it, versions of this problem. In response to listener Chris, then this is the part of the show where we, where we will say what the paper is about. Right. <laughs> I'm so looking forward to that. that. Which, we've, which we've always been doing, but we haven't yeah. been doing with rigor. And and here again, we've waited until 20 minutes into it to talk to. <laughs> yeah, but this because we really we, we said, need you to set the stage. I thought that was great. I mean, I, I thought Sandy was great. Let me be clear. I thought Sandy was great. <laughs> but I had good questions, dude. Oh, you, you were also you were also very good. Sandy Thank was you. great. You were very good. Thank you. And I said some mouth noises. You have to um, be nice to the guest. <laughs> <laughs> well, the show would not be what it is without guests. So. Who, 
we, we don't know how to do this. This is like uncharted territory if we're thinking about it formally. Like normally it's kind of natural, right. which is why it doesn't always come off perfectly. But so why to, isn't Sandy going to give us a summary well, of the thesis? Well, because I had no advance notice of that <laughs> obligation. <laughs> <laughs> that I, is a good reason. I feel like I feel like you should summarize, Joe. Like how would you what, – what's the paper about? Well, uh, as I understand it, there are uh, – at their, their facets of criminal justice that are using uh, algorithmic tools to make decisions like, and here is where the details are, are going to elude me pretty quickly, but, but if we're doing things like um, pretrial detention decisions, bail decisions, other sorts of things that, that included in some of these decisions is this forward-looking risk component, but instead of people just sort of eyeballing it or having a rough sense of the way things have worked out before, there's this effort to use large data aggregations to create checklists that people can click through and get some sort of like, okay, this you should definitely detain this person or not, or you should definitely have this sort of bail structure or not. Um, and that those algorithmic tools uh, using all these data um, are, are open to a fairly obvious criticism, which is that to the degree that the data going into the algorithms are based on our prior practices of arresting people at various rates, um, that they're going to be inflected by race because everything about criminal justice is inflected so by race. So just like advertising used to be you know, pretty blunt with, you know, with just um, raw demographics. Or maybe if I if I want to attract people to my store, I would go to a store, which I think is kind of similar. And I would put flyers in all the car windows. Like that's a very kind of blunt way of, of attracting people to my store. And the whole – and people now are familiar with the big data way, right, which is I – you know, Amazon or some other company tracks all my browsing history and they figure out, they put me in all these like thousand different categories and they kind of predict, am I likely to spend money on this or that? Yep. And I have a complicated thing, which maybe no human being understands because yep. it has so many or, inputs. Or Facebook could sell advertisements based on the, these user profiles right. and we'll, we'll make sure that they see this ad because they have these characteristics. So it's an effort to har- sort of harness what we know about prior events to project into the future what would be the likely event. But I think I, I saw you kind of cr- cringing as I talked about bail and, and pretrial detention stuff. So I don't think I've got the details right, but I think I've got the very broad strokes right. Indeed, indeed. I, I certainly did not cringe if I made any face. <laughs> I, I was internally imagining cringing. <laughs> it was only because your example, your examples of the specific context in which risk assessment tools are being deployed were bail and pretrial detention decisions, which in fact are the same thing and and nothing else. So I only ah, wanted to right. add additional context. So if you deny bail, that means you're going to detain someone. If Correct. If you grant bail, it means you're not detaining them. Exactly. Well, at least in theory, a okay. grant of bail should mean release. Oh, it doesn't well, always. they can't always make bail. Yes. And, yeah, ah, yeah, right, right. right. Yeah, yeah. But in theory, yes. Uh, so to just add to the list of... Uh, context in criminal justice proceedings where risk assessment tools are currently being deployed. They include policing. There are an increasing number of predictive policing algorithms that are designed to aid police determining who to stop uh, in some situations, perhaps who to search, even who to arrest on the basis of statistical risk. And then charging decisions. Some prosecutors' offices are starting to use risk assessment tools in charging decisions, who to charge, what to charge in plea bargaining, those risk assessments become relevant in pretrial custody determinations, in sentencing determinations. Pennsylvania, I've uh, been following, has had a fascinating 
process because the Pennsylvania legislature commanded the Pennsylvania Sentencing Commission to develop a risk assessment tool to be used in Pennsylvania sentencing proceedings. And then when a person has been sentenced, sentenced to parole, or I'm sorry, to probation, the determination of what degree of supervision should be imposed on probation. If someone's been sentenced to prison, the placement of that person, the in uh, which level, which degree of custodial supervision, where in the prison system the person should go, mm. and then for parole decisions too. So literally at every step in a criminal proceeding, some jurisdiction is using risk assessment tools and many others are contemplating it. There's not a single facet of it from start to finish that is untouched by these practices, at least in some locations. I think that's safe to say. Wow. So, so these algorithms, like all algorithms. That is much more pervasive than I realized, yeah. even reading very excellent papers like <laughs> Sandy's. <laughs> that, that, I think that's how hard it is to get into your mind that it's this pervasive. It, because, again, I don't have criminal law experience, so I don't, I don't appreciate all those facets. But hearing them, it's sort of like, oh, my gosh, that's the whole thing. It's yeah, the which, whole thing. In a way, just demonstrates how pervasive it's been all along, but through other you know, through other kinds of internal meat-based algorithms. So that's the other um, (laughs) amendment I'd make or just thing that I would clarify in your excellent synopsis is there are two phenomena the paper is about. And one is this new phenomena of uh, risk assessment algorithms. So just as you described, the harnessing of big data, aggregated data to make statistical predictions on a mechanical formulaic algorithmic basis. That's the new thing. And then the older thing is the kind of risk assessment that Christian was talking about and you referred to, judging the risk that someone poses just on the basis of how the person looks, some very basic facts that a judge or a court or a probation officer knows about the person and the the past experience of the entity making that risk assessment. Mm-hmm. So that that we call subjective risk assessment. And Sorry. No, it's J- Joe has a call. <laughs> Joe's, Joe's a received call. a call. This is still this is going to be in the show. <laughs> Joe is in demand. Yeah. <laughs> uh, the, it buzzed. It did not ring. Yeah, that's true. Part of the uh, per- perhaps the core. Well, I don't know if it's the core thesis. The, a, a central theme in the paper is that, in fact, subjective risk assessment is so pervasive that we can't solve the problems posed by algorithmic risk assessment just by rejecting algorithmic methodology. Because the status quo is not all that different. Right. So there are waves of critique about the algorithmic techniques, that uh, critiques based in the fact that the algorithmic techniques lay bare the degree to which race inf- inflects so much of the output. Well, uh, algorithms, of the risk is, yeah. right? Algorithms in general take inputs, right? And they produce outputs. And they are either simple, they are complicated, they are digital, they are meat based, however they are, right? You, you put stuff in processing happens and then a decision comes out right and uh, the paper here is is about you know how uh, if, if those data are correlated with uh, membership in certain groups and uh, Sandy concentrates on racial groups um, then you know your your output will depend on those racial groups almost certainly right um, to the extent that the you know that the that the 
the data concerning the data that are correlated to membership are important in the algorithm, right? And so the question is like, how do you deal with that if one of the things that you want to do in a society is to have outcomes not turn on membership in those groups? So if you don't want your decisions to be based on the race of the person in front of you, and yet you want to use a an algorithm which is predictive, meaning that it actually, you know, if you studied it, it actually does a pretty good job of predicting you know, whether this person will commit a crime in the future or be arrested in the future, this is part of the problem, right? Um, then then how do you do that? Um, how do you do that? How do you serve both of those functions at, at one time? And one of the things that you say early in the paper is that, you know, if you're trying to minimize false positives and false negatives and be predictive, it turns out you can't do all three. Like there's an, there's an actual impossibility result that you, it's kind of like Arrow's theorem, but for in this context, right? Right. That the, the things that you think are fair, you actually can't achieve with a, with a good algorithm in the case where, um, uh, where group membership is correlated in this way. Yes. And so then you, so, so then there's more to the paper. So, so, so that given that, given that, um, that we have this problem that the data which are going in are correlated with group, uh, group membership, right? And that although we might want to minimize false positives and false negatives, and we can talk about all those sources of error, like that's going to be really hard. There are these responses to that, right? There are these responses to this problem and you kind of criticize all of these responses in a way, right? So how, how do we, how does the, where does the paper go from there? So the responses you're talking about, there are three, what I call kind of primary strategies for racial equity that people who care about racial equity and work in this field have been advocating, uh, which are well-intentioned. I mean, the, the goal is urgent. The three strategies are eliminating race as an input variable and things that correlate with race as input variables in the hopes that that will improve the fairness of output, the outputs. The second one is some adjustment of the algorithm itself to try to equalize outputs by some equality metric. In the paper, as Christian said, uh, there's kind of a lengthy and Probably boring conversation about the various possible metrics of output equality. No, but anyway, some I don't think boring. <laughs> some effort to tweak the algorithm to achieve output equality of some kind, and then the last strategy, which has become the most prominent and which has really uh, been gaining adherence, is just to reject algorithmic methods altogether, to eschew algorithmic prediction entirely in criminal justice. Uh, and the argument I make in the paper is that none of those three will solve the underlying problem because the problem is a problem with prediction itself, the activity of trying to predict something in the future that in the past has correlated with group membership. And the problem is in the nature of that activity. It's not in the method by which we do it. So it's not in algorithmic methods. It's not in a particular algorithm. Uh, where does the paper go from there? I, well, let me just say, because I think one of the most uh, arresting like um, um, motifs in the paper, right, is that an algorithm is a mirror of the past, right? It projects right. the past into the future. And there's no – because an algorithm depends on data. And what are data but like descriptions of things that have happened in the past? And, um, and so that's the central problem that you're playing with. But you – the problem with that third thing, well, let's just not use algorithms, is that like – we, whenever we make decisions, we are using some kind of meat-based algorithm, right? Yes, like it, right. And 
And well, we're guess, always using the past. I mean, we could try, I, I suppose we could try, although with the benefit of this conversation, I now r- realize the, the futility, the, the, the deep futility that might be involved in, in trying. But, but we could try to have a criminal justice system that simply never tried to predict anything about the future. Right. The, and, and only looked back and only tried to ascertain for this bad thing that happened, who was the who person did who did it? And, and have a table that says, if you find they did it, stick them in this place for this amount of time. And b- just strip it down to as bare bones as possible, as backward looking as possible. But but I have the sense that that ship, if it was ever available, sailed long ago. You mean pure retribution. Pure, in other words, a uh, purely retributive system. Right. And, 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 um, but still, and, that, and that, only that, about past events, never about future events. Yeah, but but ev- so let's suppose we were purely retributive, so that we we set punishments like you know six months, one year, five years in prison, fine, whatever. And when we when we sat down as designers to design those punishments, we did so only with an eye toward what we thought the person deserved who committed such offenses. Right? That's purely backward. Right, and right? without any eye toward incapacitation but, for varying periods right, of time, yeah, yeah. depending on right. what their mm-hmm. uh, their other or deterrence or anything were. else. It's just pure retribution. Right. And so, uh, uh, but I think even then we would be making a judgment about what the subjective experience of the sufferer, the person who would suffer the punishment, would be during that time. We, yeah, but you still... wouldn't admit of any information. Like, you wouldn't ever revise those tables, for example, uh, in light of the experience that, um, well, cer- certain people don't mind as much being f- there for five years as opposed to others. Because then you'd be, you'd be trying to look forward in a way that I'm saying would be off limits. Right? That's think, interesting. Yeah, uh, th- these are deep questions in retributive theory that does the subjective experience of punishment how do we calculate uh, deserved punishment? Right. Is it an objective measure, or is it? <laughs> what I this is not a subject on which I am currently writing, and or on which I'm expert. I'm inclined it's to think for the show. Then it is yeah, perfect. Yeah. Great. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, what we do, Adam here. Colbert. I can give a shout out to Adam Colbert at Brooklyn has written a lot. About Friend of the show. This. He's been on the show. Uh, and Doug Husack at Rutgers is also thinking through questions of dessert uh, and proportionality right now. So everyone should read anything they write. Um, I'm inclined to think that the subjective experience of punishment is relevant but not determinative. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if I can give you a more <laughs> a more comprehensive well, answer than but that. My, so, only but point, what, my, my only point was that, like when, that no matter what you do, when you're writing down the rules and you're writing down what those punishments are, right, that – you were thinking about the way, you know, you were necessarily thinking about the way human beings experience punishment. Like there's no, yes, uh, there's no other way exactly. to do it, right? Which is and it's, inherently forward looking. Well, so there's a difference though in thinking about in ca- calibrating retributive punishment partly on the basis of the experience someone is likely to have in the future. Yeah. There's a difference between that and restricting a person's liberty on the basis of an action that they, we think, have some probability of taking in the future. Right? And of course. Yeah, that's why, that's why we can bracket. Yeah, that's why yeah. we can bracket this whole thing. But my, my, my point was like, you know, that if you when, when you're writing down rules that you want to take place in the future, that you necessarily consult some experience you had in the past. Right. Right. But Whether uh, it's experience of human nature generally right. or of specific people, it is... 
I don't think that negates Joe's hypothetical, though, of a purely retributive criminal justice system that would not engage in any kind of prediction. I was hoping I I would negate Joe. (laughs) At least try as hard as possible. Um, And and again, uh, you know, I recognize the futility in a sense of that. uh, And certainly at this late date in, in the way actual criminal justice seems to actually be carried out, that there's going to be tons of prospectivity in the way people approach the things that are happening. And that means that on the third uh, critique that Sandy mentioned of saying, let's just stop using algorithms, that that is just sounds terrible, right? In the sense that, because that just means we're going to be sloppy about trying to do the same prospectivity. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I'm not for that. I'm, uh, you know, I, let's, if the algorithms are showing us things that we don't like about reality, it means we need to get down to the hard business of trying to improve reality. But I, I don't think it means you throw away the thing that helped you see it. Mm. That is a great statement of the paper's thesis. Yes. That is yeah, precisely cool. precisely what I intend to be arguing in the paper. So for the sake of discussion, I will offer the counter argument, right, which is that algorithms, and when I say algorithms, I mean big data algorithms mm-hmm. of the kind that people are presently worried about they do present certain unique dangers, one of which is they have this veneer of scientific objectivity. And yeah, this is the white lab coat problem, yes, right? Yes, yeah. exactly. So even if the the problems are, as I argue in the paper, just problems with the underlying activity of prediction that they reveal rather than problems they themselves create, uh, the danger is nobody will pay attention to those problems because courts and other criminal justice entities will just take them to be some kind of high-tech gospel truth right? and defer to the algorithm, whereas when people are using their messy brain algorithms, everybody understands how fallible they are. um, And that they are perfectly competent to disagree. Right, right, right. So that's, I think that's the best counter-argument, but... um, I don't even know why I raised at this point because what you said is is precisely what I think and what I wrote this paper to express. Well, I, w- I want to dive into that, but I think in order to do it, we need to um, go back to um, some of the careful work you do in the early in one of the early parts of the paper, where you kind of use some charts and other things to show people how, um, if in fact groups are dissimilar in um, in the data going in, um, and you think those data are relevant, then there's almost like nothing you can do. Um, uh, to um, let's see how to say this um, to to solve all the problems you want to solve at the same time, right? So um, so so if the let's see, how, what are some of the examples here where you have you the know, little figures, the the, the, the chart, false error? The, yeah, these yeah. graphics that you've developed are like incredibly awesome because they make super clear with examples about because you got three things going on. You got the box that is around certain sizes of groups. You've got the number of people within two classes that actually will commit the bad thing in the future. They're, they have a shadow behind them. Mm-hmm. And then the, the total number of people who you're processing through your system with the, you know, the 10 figures, they're just really good. Thanks, Joe. <laughs> <laughs> well, so, so if you have, if you have groups that offend at, at very different rates or are arrested at very different, let's just yes. say that, that they offend at different rates, because you, as you point out in the paper, there are, um, there's good evidence that um, even racial groups offend different kinds of criminal statutes at different rates. Uh, for example, you, you mentioned like financial crimes, right, are disproportionately committed by whites, right? Yes, uh, white and, men to be specific. Yeah, well, yeah. yeah. And, and here, before I think before we go any further, so when 
and again, this is a very fraught subject. Very. So, so I think it's important to think about when people when people reflect on the notion that um, d- different crimes are committed by different rates by different groups, right? right. Um, that is not, I, th- I take it, necessarily or, or even maybe likely, a statement about something inherent to those groups. Absolutely As much not. as it is about like, okay, so why are most of the people who commit um, these sort of big ticket financial crimes m- men? Well, because the people who are in jobs that put you in a position to commit such crimes are usually held by men, right? That would be one answer to the question or one part of one answer to the right. question. Right. I want to get to this because so the, what the algorithm would do, if it takes prior, uh, you know, if it, if it takes um, relevant information into account, it might predict that your membership in that group makes you more likely to commit this in the f- offense in the future. And therefore, the algorithm will, you know, will increase your sentence, will make you less likely to get um, – uh, pre-trial release, you know, all of these things that that uh, you would that you would want, you may not get because of your group membership or because you fit data which are tied to your group membership, and so this is kind of a problem. And in particular, I think the the problem is so so race in particular, right, is um, is welded to other social facts, right, and from some of those it's inseparable. And I think racists in particular, people who are actually racist, right think that race and propensity to commit certain kinds of violent crimes are welded together, right? They, they, they just think that those are, you know, they are tied, right? And that, that's almost the definition of racism, right? Um, but most like normal people, <laughs> right, think that race is, race is in fact welded to other social facts right now that, that beca- for all kinds of complicated reasons, like, you know, there's neighborhood segregation, right? So if, you, if, we, if our algorithm took account of where you lived, that people who live on this block are more likely to offend than if you live in this other neighborhood. And there are all kinds of re- that may actually be true. It's, it's, you know, it is certainly true in lots of places, right? There is, you're more likely to commit a criminal offense condition on every, you know, conditional on everything else being the same, right? And of course, that all wrapped up in likelihood to commit a criminal offense is that we defined a crime of that sort exactly. in that particular way, that, mm-hmm. that, that it gets policed in that particular way in that particular geographical location um, to that intensity. There's just so many assumptions that are going into what's the result we call, you know, um, arrested for that. Exactly. I think I'm so glad you bring this up and that you all have begun articulating some of those assumptions. But I, I want to be careful to just pause and make sure we are, <laughs> acknowledge a couple of them. And the first you referred to, Christian, is that arrest is not equivalent to crime commission. And a lot, I mean, that is just a, a difference that is often overlooked by mm-hmm. risk assessment tools themselves, mm. by scholarship on risk assessment tools. So it's essential to have the difference in mind between arrest and arrest rates and crime commission and crime commission rates. So for some categories of crime, there's reason to think that those two things are very different, that the rates of arrest by racial group, by age group, by... I think there are really good studies on marijuana for this, right? Yes, Exactly. For marijuana and and many other drugs as well, in fact, there's pretty good studies um, suggesting that usage rates are, for all purposes, equivalent across racial groups mm-hmm. broadly. Right. In, in things might be different in specific places and sp- specific times, but broadly, usage rates are equivalent across racial groups, whereas arrest rates are not. And people of color are much, much more likely to be arrested for drug offenses. So, so than, one way to put that would be. Um, Am I right in thinking 
like arrest is a terrible proxy for usage. Right. So because it turns out that arrest rates differ, but usage doesn't. Exactly. So if you're using one to estimate the other, you're making a big mistake. You're using a bad proxy, and you're using a proxy that embeds racial skew vis-a-vis rates of offending, the thing that you actually care about. So for some categories of crime, that is true. It may not be true for all categories of crime, but it's we also lack good data on offending rates and crime commission rates for many categories of crime, and that's as an important to fact. Rate. But, but, as but, but to if you rates. knew, if you knew the um, if you knew the racism bias, right? Or you know, we can call it racism bias. But, you but if, you, if you knew the rate, it. then you could correct yes, for it. And could. actually, arrest rates would be a great proxy right. because you've corrected for it, right? <laughs> if it's a big if, yeah. So that's the first point to always have in mind. The second is, as I think you were just saying now, Joe, that the very thing that we define as crime and that we it's a it's a social choice. So you, I have argued in this paper and elsewhere that instead of Focusing on the risk of arrest for anything, which I think is pretty meaningless, uh, system actors should be evaluating the risk of arrest for violent crime. But having said that, you know, I have to acknowledge that what we understand as violent crime is a is it's not it's not an objective decision. It's not written in stone somewhere, and uh, so the very offenses that we put into the categories we choose to measure are a function of social facts. Uh, and I think those are the two central things I wanted to acknowledge. But, yeah, <laughs> yeah, right. then, it's a fraught subject. It's, it's, so it's incredibly worth, like, fraught. It's incredibly fraught. It's incredibly important. It's incredibly sensitive. If we are going to, for the sake of clarity and conversation, talk, talk about differential offending rates, then mm-hmm. it's also essential to acknowledge, as you began to do at the very end, that to the extent there are differences across demographic groups in actual offending rates, in, those are also a function of social facts. Absolutely. Right? Race itself is a social fact and and not a function of some sort of you know, inherent or biological propensity. That's the right. That's the racist view. Yeah, that's that's the racist <laughs> view, right? I mean a racist view is that that that's the tie. And of course the non racist view is that's not the tie. But um um, what was I going to say? That um, so I w- the other thing that struck me when I was reading this paper is that there is absolutely nothing special about the criminal context here. I, right. I, you could have right. rewritten this paper about affirmative action and hiring or about um, any number of other things where there is a human decision to be made, which already works according to a brain-based algorithm but could be converted to uh, uh, any other kind of algorithm, um, where – uh, there is a t- that where there is a correlation between the data you would want to use and and social group membership of any kind. It doesn't have to be race, and and so there's nothing particularly special about criminal law here, except maybe we have more data, and and it's an issue that we care a lot about, right? I mean, it's a good case study, but this yeah. is a, this is a paper about like algorithmic design, which is forcing us to confront what yeah. we already do, right, and how we think about social inclusion yeah. in that project, right? right. That's. That is true. And that is how I've been thinking about the paper. I've been thinking about it as a case study mm-hmm. in these larger questions of you know, quote unquote algorithmic fairness. Um, I didn't feel there wasn't room in this paper to engage with that broader landscape, really. But I, I, I have a follow on piece in the works in which right. I hope to do that. I do think a, one significant thing that varies across contexts is the the purpose of the algorithm and i just briefly allude to this at the very end in the criminal justice context these tools 
what they purport to do and what the system wants them to do is communicate statistical risk of X event faithfully. And elsewhere, that's that's not the purpose of algorithm hiring algorithms. Algorithms used to select students for admission to college. It's it's not clear that the point of those algorithms is or should be to accurately reflect some statistical fact. Right? We might have distributive goals or allocational goals that that we don't have in in the criminal justice context, and that radically changes the analysis of what interventions are appropriate to what kind of equality is is possible to achieve and is uh, and for well, which we should strive. I want to explore that a little bit more. So you so so how would you describe the difference between what we're trying to do in these criminal justice risk assessment? tools and settings with looking at, you know, high school GPA and score on a SAT test or an ACT test and likelihood of succeeding at a particular college's academic program. How how are those two things alike and how are they different from the from the way that you think about the work you're doing? Because I would have thought of those as pretty similar. They are. They are similar. There are differences. It's a good question. This is the thing I'm trying to think through currently. Oh, so cool. I don't I don't have all the answer worked out. But so in the criminal justice system, the key question, I think, across algorithmic contexts is what precisely are we trying to predict? Right? What statistical fact are we trying to represent here? In the criminal justice context, let's say we're trying to assess the statistical likelihood a person commits crime X. And let's just presume for the sake of the conversation that we do have accurate past data about crime commission, mm-hmm. not just arrest data that is skewed you know, and a terrible proxy. So we have accurate past data about crime commission. We want to predict who's going to commit crime X in the future or assess the statistical likelihood that this person will commit crime X. If crime X, rates of crime X in the past correlate with some demographic trait in the population we have and the data set we have, and, and let's say race since we're talking about race, if they correlate with race, then the outputs of that algorithm, if the algorithm is halfway decent, will also correlate with race because the very thing we're trying to predict is correlated in the past data with race. Okay, In the educational setting, if what we are trying to predict is something that in past data that is accurate, that is reliable, is correlated with race, then then the same holds. Right? The outputs will also correlate with race. The problem, you know, I think the tricky problem, maybe this is the problem everywhere, is that especially in educational and hiring and credit contexts, it's it's not at all apparent to me what we really ought to be trying to predict. Because right? trying to predict student success under status quo conditions if status quo conditions are hostile to disadvantaged groups or racial minorities is just not a very meaningless measure right why would we want to know who is going to succeed under status quo conditions that we understand to be that doesn't seem to be so dissimilar from the criminal law project now that you say it like that though does it i mean it well it's a question it is a question is yeah so like you know like the talking. criminal the criminal um adjudication context like 
you know, we want to predict how people are going to do if we apply this punishment. But like there are all these other things that matter, like, you know, are they going to go back to the same neighborhood? What kinds of interventions will we have in that neighborhood? What will you know, it, everything's connected to everything else in the same way that it is in the educational context. Right. right? right. And, and, and the experience in jail. Right. Will be, you know, is what it is. And we can we could change that. So it's like assuming everything about the world is fixed except for this punishment. Yeah. Then we have a clear decision. The same thing in the educational context. Right. Assuming everything is the right. same. Right. Right. Then like uh, other than this admission, other decision. than this admission decision. Right. And we're not going to change our educational program at all. That that seems fairly similar. But um, I know you're right. And that's why the last half of the paper, the prescriptive part is an argument for using these kinds of risk assessments more as diagnostic tools than to justify coercive state action. Uh, yeah. And diagnosing meaning figuring out where you might intervene effectively and how you might intervene effectively. Not how, because tools that assess risk don't tell you how to reduce the risk. Mm. They Maybe they're an occasion to think about how. Yes, exactly. They diagnose risk under status quo conditions. Is there such a thing? Okay, I'm, I'm going to turn the conversation a little bit, but maybe I think it, it, for me, it will clarify because there's one concept that I really got hung up on here. And that's the idea of like individual risk equality or what is an individual risk? Right. Because we act as though it's a thing. Yeah. And, and actually, <laughs> like the very concept of individual risk yeah. depends on the model, yeah. or the algorithm, yeah. right? And so like I'm thinking of, here's an example. So suppose we've got um, a method for picking fruits that we think will taste good, okay? And there's a particular kind of fruit that, um, that goes bad very fast for some reason, right? And, but you can't tell from the outside. And so like one out of every 100 of these fruit is amazing. 99, oh my God, it's rotten, but I didn't know until this I bit like into it. This is like the world's worst crop. I mean, you can't <laughs> yeah. tell from the outside <laughs> right. and it tastes really horrible. Yeah, it tastes, 99 out tastes of really horrible. Yeah, exactly. And there's this, another- This is awful. And there's another fruit, right? Which is, you know, which is not as good as that one in 100 of the other fruit. Um, but like, you know, it's much more likely to, to taste good because it's less likely to go rotten, right? And so if our algorithm is we're going to look and just, well, this is this kind of fruit, that's that kind of fruit. Well, our algorithm is going to say the risk, right? The risk of being bad, right, is way higher with this one in a hundred fruit than it is with the even Steven fruit, right? Yeah. But if we had other techniques of perceiving, like, you know, maybe, maybe you know, a hundred years later, some scientists have been something we can kind of like you know, run our phone over the fruit or something like that. And it detects something about the surface. And we and and what it does is it actually doesn't look at the species of the fruit in any way, but it measures something else. And actually, it does a much better job of figuring out whether the fruit's going to be awesome. Then now we have a totally different conception of what the risk of bad fruit is going to be. Right. And, And so like, for that one in hundred, because it, it's about now our assessment is about the how good the instrument is at actually picking up the thing that's the thing that we the, yeah. thing that the thing that we care about. But here's the thing, right? So for that one in a hundred fruit, which was actually awesome that we passed over, like you could say its risk of being bad was ninety nine in a hundred. Yes. Yeah. But actually, yes. its risk was zero percent because it was awesome all along, <laughs> right? No, no. Your first statement is right. Its its risk on that model was ninety nine percent. And risk on that model. Yes, you, you that's, are, that's so the key. You're absolutely right. There's no there's no such thing as true risk. There's no such thing as true risk. No, right. I feel like we're reliving the Monty Hall problem. Yes, <laughs> that that thing that's really hard to understand yes. because it's about thinking about the what's behind the door. You kind of fundamentally have to re you have to fundamentally change the way you understand the question being asked. 
to get why the Monty Hall problem is the thing that it is. You have to overcome a mistake about reality that we tend to make. And here, the, the one fruit versus the 99 that are terrible, right? Risk is a thing that you're describing in that ag- for that aggregate, for that entire group. There's a sense in which it doesn't, it's, it's when you're talking about the actual taste of that actual unit of fruit, Talking about risk is sort of like, what are you talking about? Yes. Right. And so, so that, here's the here's the point I want to make. I don't know if this makes any sense okay. or not, because cool. I, I kind of just been thinking about this today. We're as a no, this well, is great. I know, this I know, is I something I, I am <laughs> perpetually wrestling with. This. It's, it's the idea of being of being fair doesn't uh, at an individual level. Yeah. Doesn't seem to work. Right. Because assigning a risk to an individual to an individual is almost always like inherently unfair because um <sighs> You know, that fr- like, is it fair to that fruit that we assigned it a 99% risk of being bad? Well, that is the risk under that model. And maybe that model was the best that we can do, right? But it, it in, a, in a sense, if, if you could be fair to fruit, right, it would be unfair, right? Um, but it's, fair, unfair doesn't seem to make sense in an, at an individual level because all models are kind of putting things into bins, right? right. And treating those things as equivalent when right. in fact they are not. And it just depends on what we think is salient. So it seems to me that if... Fairness at an individual level doesn't make sense once we've reduced our our, our effort um, at a model. What do you mean by that fairness at an individual level? Can me, you just say one more time what that because what you're trying to capture with that phrase? Because there's no such thing as an inherent individual risk level absent some model that we're because people stuff's going to happen that's going to happen, which puts it's the individual binary, in right? groups. Right. Like Although the model, there's some quantum unpredictability. Yeah, yeah. I mean, some you know, quantum but, randomness. We can get into determinism or not, yeah. right? As to whether, yeah. like, will this individual commit a crime in the future? What is the chance of that? Well, the only reason we talk about it in terms of chance is because we don't have a perfect model of the universe. Right. If we did, we would know exactly what would happen if Correct. we're deterministic about it. But, right. but setting that to one side, it seems to me that it makes sense to talk about fairness at the level of a group, right? And so, if that's the case, then maybe what we want to do is. Um, to balance our desire to be accurate with the model against other social goals that we have. Like we can't achieve all the social goals we have at one time. So with this fruit thing, like no one cares that like we're just not going to eat this fruit even though one in a hundred is awesome, right? It, like one fruit, the other fruit, like it, it's not a huge social goal to like e- equalize fruits, right? But at the level of racial groups in society, right? The fact that one racial group may be somewhat marginalized by this model and hurt by it um, especially – like has other social consequences that we care about. Certainly. Because like, you know, um, preventing future crime is not the only social goal. And so we have to weigh these against each other because there's a cost to using this model. And the reason there's a cost is because we care about like it's, you know, detrimental effects on the racial groups that uh, basically where the the identity, uh, uh, your identity as a member of that group is is an input data into the model, either through a proxy or directly, right? And so it makes sense to spend something to promote social inclusion. And that spending comes in the form of a slightly worse model of the future. So I agree with everything you said until the last clause. I, I agree wholeheartedly. I could not agree more with everything oh, you wow. said until the, the last clause. We need to clip yes, this. I mean, the this consequences. needs to be an introduction every show from now <laughs> 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 um, The consequences matter. They matter profoundly. There are other other goods at stake than the accuracy of our prediction in this context. 
but I don't think the answer if if we are going to maintain the project of assessing risk, which is an kind of an aggregate project by its nature, as you've explained, I don't think the answer to the inequality inherent in that project is to have compromised the project itself or to adjust an algorithm so that it it doesn't for the fruit for the if the best model we have assigns that one rotten fruit a 99% chance of being right i'm sorry it was the one it was the one awesome fruit yeah 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 99% chance of being rotten if that's the best model we have the the answer is not to cripple the model so that it instead it assigns that fruit a 70% chance of being rotten you know and all other fruits like it mm-hmm. because that too that kind of error too has consequences in the world mm. and one of the things i lay out in the paper is that those con- the consequences of that error may fall disproportionately on the very group we're trying to protect absolutely so i think you want to weigh like so the the social costs of the slightly worse model against the social gains from inclusion, right? So suppose that our goal with fruits was like, okay, so we can predict like are how bad these fruits are, but maybe are we have a... really? And you don't no, necessarily you get better inclusion is the problem. If you got better inclusion, it would be a... Then maybe that's a trade-off we could make, but mm-hmm. you don't, and I... Like biodiversity could be a goal we have with fruit, right? <laughs> and and so our, our goal about like weeding out fruits, which we think are likely to be bad, right, is one social goal. But another social goal is having, you know, preserving lots of human edible foods, right? And so we might want to spend money, right, to increase, the, you know, to, to make sure that we have a, a salvageable number of these fruits and keep them around, even though our model might suggest we shouldn't be producing any of these fruits. We should be spending time on fruits. Because so a, few of them are good. Because so few of them are good, right? And so we we would – so to the extent that that algorithm about likelihood of being good yeah. was driving our decision about which farmers to support, you know, maybe we're in a command economy or something like that, then, uh, you know, the pure application of that algorithm would drive out that 1% good fruit. But that's not our only social goal with fruit growing. Yeah, and, but so the answer is then you subsidize the farmers, but you don't make the algorithm give you an incorrect statistical assessment, right? You you acknowledge the statistical reality and then you change the conditions on the ground. Because so, absent which, more knowledge about what makes the fruit taste good or taste bad, the best thing you can do is say ninety nine out of hundred of these is bad. Well, so right? I mean that's so you've gotta you've gotta do something about the way you come to know stuff and, and how you make connections between the things you know. Yeah, you can you can that's do what's that's what you can change the way you come to know stuff, the the uh, the model itself, right? the accuracy of the model itself, and then the ground level conditions that produce those statistical results. So and that's ultimately the argument of the paper that you ditching big data algorithms doesn't mm-hmm. solve the problem. A worse algorithm is not more inclusive. It's not going to create racial equity it's and criminal justice outcomes. Algorithm. It's just a worse algorithm, <laughs> which could actually have detrimental effects on social equity overall. That if we really want to fix the problem, we have to change the ground level conditions. We have to target, I think I say, or target the risky for support instead of restraint, sort of understand risk differently than we have, understand that in, uh, in many criminal justice contexts, the kinds of risk we're assessing, we're diagnosing, the risk of getting arrested or the risk of committing you know, certain categories of crime is a function of disadvantage. And that's disadvantage the system can 
strive to help remedy. Now, obviously, the criminal justice system is not going to fix every right. kind of social inequality. I, but but I guess what benefits are we though? getting from engaging in all of this risk assessment? Like if you if you ask, if you just ask somebody why is it good that there's that risk assessment is so pervasive in in criminal justice is there an answer that people give as the traditional like what's the traditionally conceived benefit I'm not sure the question is usually put in those terms I, the question is is it avoidable and in a lot of criminal justice contexts I I don't think it is. Some people perhaps think it is. But in the pretrial context, for instance, bail reform is happening now in a lot of places. Mm -hmm. And I guess maybe this is a part, a kind of answer to your question. We have had, in most U.S. jurisdictions, we have been operating with money bail systems in which, in almost every case, courts impose some amount of monetary bail uh, secured money bail. And if you have the money, you post the bail and you get out. And if you don't, you sit in jail. So that's a pretrial system that makes detention decisions on the basis of wealth, uh, which almost no one thinks is logical. Right? The alternative and the bail reform model is to make pretrial detention decisions directly on the basis of risk. The risks that are relevant are the risk that somebody's not going to show up to court, the risk that, I mean, it actually gets complicated, it's, yeah, yeah, but yeah, whatever. Yeah, And the risk that someone will commit some harm if the person's at liberty pending trial. Can you operate a pretrial system without reference to those risks uh, in mm. a fair and rational way? Can you, can you tell me, like, what's the algorithm? So suppose that I've got a, a numerical procedure uh, where I take relevant inputs. I take, you know, inputs that we don't think are inherently biased, but I take inputs and it creates a number. And um, when we actually look at that number, and I suppose this is the best we can do. We compare it with all other algorithms in terms of pre- predicting future commission of harm. Yes. Right? Future, uh, um, uh, so, and so this is the best, right? But we also find out that it is racially correlated to a disturbing degree. Okay. And, and, and maybe if we had a better, if we, if we could come up with a better algorithm, it wouldn't be as racially um, uh, um, discriminatory, right? Mm-hmm. Um, in the same way that maybe we could have the better algorithm, you know, to find these good fruit, right? So, so that you could imagine that that part of the reason that we it, it is um, picking out uh, a racially disadvantaged group at a high rate is partly error, right? Um, but but we can't do better. And so and so what the um, court does is it gets this number, and it says, look, if you're part of this racially disadvantaged group, your cutoff number is seven, and if you're above a seven, you don't get um, pretrial release. But if you're not part of that racially disadvantaged group and your number, then uh, you don't get pretrial release if your number is above a five. What's the algorithm in that situation? What's the algorithm? Mm-hmm. The the algorithm. I mean, it's there are two separate algorithms, right? But the, the but it's the compound, right? I mean, yes. so the, the, so now the race is now an an explicit part of yes. the algorithm for decision making. Yes. Right? Because you have to know which category you're you're assigned to to know which cutoff to use. Right. This is another interesting theme in the paper and and in this debate, which is that if, you know, I in the paper kind of criticize these what I call algorithmic affirmative action, what some other people do too, but these intentional interventions, adjustments to the algorithm itself to try to equalize outputs or mitigate some kind of racial disparity in outputs. And one challenge with that approach is that 
it uh, likely requires explicit consideration of race or of the trait right. that you are trying to maybe equalize for in the algorithm itself. And that, of course, raises equal protection concerns. This is the same in the affirmative action it's context, which it's is a, why it's the, precisely the, same. the political compromise that O'Connor right. reaches, like, just do it and don't talk about it, right? <laughs> right, which you can do, you can do in the algorithmic context, too. There are a whole set of scholars have, have um, of kind of data scientists have been developing procedures called disparate learning procedures uh, that can, you know, the goal being to have learned differently for different racial groups in order to develop an algorithm that uh, equalizes outputs in some way by some metric. And it's really interesting. Uh, there's a recent paper by uh, a group of computer scientists, one of whom is Alex Chuldakova. Uh, Zach Lipton, I think, is the first author. So arguing on the basis of their mathematical expertise, it's much greater than mine, mm -hmm. that these disparate learning procedures designed to try and get around the prohibition on explicit use of race are, are ultimately not going to be as effective as just explicitly using right. race or the variable in question. So that's a whole really fascinating sub-debate sub here. Yeah, it's kind of pushing back just because like um, – it's not clear to me that if, if we decide that we want um, – well, so, so we, we, we make the algorithm as good as it can be. Yeah. And it's not that we're making our predictions of the future worse, but when it comes out with a, with a prediction that will have, if carried into action through a decision, racially discriminatory effects – then we have another decision to make about Correct. what the benefits and harms are of that racially skewed decision making. Correct. Um, so you're not pushing back against my argument. Right. You're yeah. ag agreeing with the ultimate there we go. prescription, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> <That's> how, <laughs> um, which is that the the best approach to problems of racial inequality and prediction is not to change the algorithmic assessment itself, but to change our response. Well, that's, and, that's what I was problematizing a little oh, bit. That's, that's why, why I asked you, what is the, the algorithm? algorithm? Yeah. Because the, well, because now, yeah. But the only, uh, again, something that's worth saying is almost no one thinks that uh, statistical assessment itself can justify detention yeah. or some radical deprivation of liberty, including myself. I don't think at, at least given our current algorithmic tools, that any of the existing risk assessment tools itself is sufficient to justify detention. Because there are always individual factors that fall outside the scope of what the algorithm can account for. Um, this gets complicated, too. Sort of yeah. how, how much discretion to allow courts and when? But anyhow, that said... How much do we want to allow this to go through the heuristics of the human yes. brain that are hard to capture? Right. I mean, but now we're creating these machines which have or, you know, it's hard to know exactly what they're doing. Right. Because it's not just a regression. It's yeah, machine depends, learning. Depends, and, right, depends yeah. on the particular. Yeah. Yeah. Machine like learning what you're saying is no one's on board yet for pre-crime. That, that to, to have a predictive tool that would allow you to just look, we just these are people that just need to be detained. They, mm. they haven't done the bad thing yet. They just need to be detained. Like um, no one's on board for that. Based on these algorithms. Mm. You're not on board for that. <laughs> Maybe yeah, some no people are, you're not. I'm not. A very few people, if any, are on board with locking a person up solely on the basis of a mechanical algorithmic 
assessment and, and, with but, no but human discretion. Isn't that because like but, that decision to lock someone up is a very individual burden and we've just kind of been through how I think that that um, st- uh, individual risk is not right yes. is not a real thing independent of the model right it's not it's not about the individual per se it yeah, is a function but, of societies but what, yeah. what what people don't I mean <laughs> you're right and yet what the conclusion that a lot of people draw from that is that we shouldn't do any statistical risk right. assessment of individuals. We should only do, quote unquote, individualized assessment, you know, one human being individually assessing another. But in fact, there exactly. is no such thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That is also statistical aggregate analysis. The individual doing the assessing is just referring back to the data set in that individual's brain rather than a data set on a computer so there there is no such thing as individualized assessment because there is no such thing as individual risk right wow (laughs) or or individual encounters apart from all the things we encountered beforehand that we bring to the current encounter exactly with salient heuristics and all the other things that we use to kind of do our rough and ready stuff right we we darn it we have reached the end, I think, unfortunately, because but, but, well, I think you mean the end of this conversation. Yes. I don't think, I don't yes. think you mean the end of the world. No, no. It's, uh, but, you... but we've reached the time when we need to stop. Yes. And, and Which is really sad. It's because... really sad because there's so much to this paper. And I'm like, I'm, I'm trying to learn. I'm scratching the surface. And I, ha- I have all these misconceptions, I think, about <laughs> like <laughs> algorithms and risk. And I was just thrown today thinking about like, you know, you know, I'm asking questions like, what is probability? Yeah. <laughs> what is risk? Yeah. And, and and these things, it's it's kind of like um, thinking about what time is, right? You think you know what it is until you think about it for a minute. And then you wonder. But here's the thing I know for sure. As, yeah. as, as, as confused as I am about so many things right now, um, here's what I know for sure. I'm certainly less, much less confused than I was before by virtue of encountering Sandy's paper because it's really very well laid out, very well explained. Absolutely. So you cannot help but make yourself a much better thinker about this, which means for me, I went from really unbelievably bad to believably super terrible bad. <laughs> but, but I got better because of the paper. Well, I, th- I think it clearly complicates things. Do you know what I mean? Like you're very clear about what is complicated here and you kind of lay out existing approaches to dealing with the problem and then you yeah. show that there is this other problem and we need to, you know, so yeah. it's, a, I think it's very well done in terms of if, if someone wants to know like what is the, what is the state of the art in thinking about, you know, philosophically and legally about how to approach big data meets criminal law, which if you can understand it will help you understand big data meets all kinds of other social decision making, yeah. right? Then this is a really good paper to get started with. Yes. Thank you so much to both of you. Is that it? Yeah, I think that we just stopped there. <laughs> I don't want to stop because I'm, I don't right, either, right, but we right, don't right, have 18 right, hours. All right, all right, all right, all right. I'm going to hit stop.